Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I'm almost more interested in somebody who can pass a technical test but who has an undergraduate degree in sociology, in economics, in political science, in one of these soft science type things that it shows that you've thought about how to think about things from a theoretical perspective or from a human perspective, uh, and yet you still have the tech schools. I really like that combination of skills. I think it's a very, very interesting one. This is Humane, a weekly podcast focused on bridging the gap between humans and machines in this age of acceleration. My name is David Jakobovich, and on this podcast, I interview experts in sociology, psychology, artificial intelligence, researchers on consumer-facing products and consumer-facing companies to help audiences better understand AI and its many capabilities. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and leave a review. From AI governance and your privacy to how you can level up your learning and awareness on AI systems, today's guest speaker shares his take on both public and private partnerships in the age of AI. Enabling the future of work requires continued learning. It requires a commitment to remove your biases, and it requires your persistence to show up to opportunities. Find out what Jed Dorty has to share on this episode of Humane. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning back into the Humane podcast. I have with us today Jed Dorty, who is a lead data scientist at Data IQ, talking all about things in machine learning, AI, governance, 
and how you can be involved in the AI race. Uh, one of the big pushes that Dataiku goes for, or you know, has tried to build as it's been building out its product uh, since 2013, uh, is this kind of inclusive idea of artificial intelligence. Is that you know, as long as we're building this big scary thing, uh, and the whole world is now beginning to use it, uh, it should be able to be used as by as many people as possible because limiting it to a few really smart dudes in their ivory tower or uh, at the very forefront of a few, a few very small tech companies is also going to limit who has gets power from it. So the more we can make these tools relatively easy to use, uh, the more evenly the distributed the power that comes from them is going to be. And we've always kind of fought to, the, to, to do that. I think it scares a lot of people in the data science community that we make some of this stuff really easy. Uh, because you know they want to be, you know they, they want to be the the gatekeeper, right? But uh, it's also as long as as long as we're also educating while we're giving people the ability to do these additional things, then I, I think we're doing the right thing, or we're trying to at least. I think that's such an interesting topic. So definitely we should discuss that during the podcast because I think whether it's Google Next or whether it's the splintering of code and uh, or, you know, drag and drop with products like yourselves and many other competitors out there. I think that's interesting. Yeah. So Google and Amazon right now, both of them like are really pushing for this thing of like, let us do the algorithms and then you just push your data to our API endpoints. We'll do the magic and then return you results which keeps the power kind of in their hands, although it lets like everybody build stuff on top of that power. It's, it's an interesting kind of like, uh, interesting give back and forth, right? They're not saying let us do everything. They're just saying let us maintain the control of the actual algorithms. You know, when we think of enterprise machine learning pipelines, uh, that's something that's been all the rage and it's, uh, again, splintering, right? Do you learn how to code and build all the pipelines by scratch? Uh, if you're a citizen data scientist, uh, maybe that's something you're looking to upskill on. So you could be on a data science team. But if you're the enterprise executive, perhaps you like these automation tools that um, Google, Amazon, uh, even Data IQ that you guys are coming out with. Uh, you have any thoughts on what direction the industry is going towards? I mean, definitely what I, what I see a lot in uh, the larger enterprise folks that I work with is they have a really hard time. Okay, let's just talk about like median income of a data scientist at Google. I think there's a Wall Street Journal post that came out pretty recently about this, uh, talking about like what's not just the data scientist at Google or at you know the, the big four tech companies, uh, but just the median income of an employee there. Uh, at Facebook, it's like $245,000. No big company in America except those big four tech companies is going to be hitting that median income for their data scientists, uh, which means they have a different pool of talent to pull from, period. And like, these are huge companies, you know, we're talking like the largest banks, the largest uh, manufacturing, the largest uh, pharmaceutical companies in America are still not hiring from the same talent pool that Google, Amazon, Facebook, uh, you know, Netflix are hiring from uh, Microsoft. And so if you're an executive, you know this. And as much as you want all your guys uh, to be exactly, you know, building everything from scratch, because that's where like the absolute bleeding edge comes from, you also know that's just not the people you're hiring, right? Um, and it maybe it doesn't need to be, um, uh, the way it doesn't need to be might be 
few different avenues of like things that you could replace uh, or tools you can give these people so they don't need to be this full spectrum super data scientist. Um, but that's kind of what I think Google is trying to provide is, okay, we know, we think this is the hardest part. And so we're going to give you this. So then you can have people who do everything else. Uh, I think Google and Amazon have a slightly different perspective on what the hardest part might be than what data IQ does. Uh, but I think that's kind of what they're all trying to, to help with. You know, in uh, April 2019, I had the opportunity to be part of the New York AI conference. And this was a community conference where we talked about AI ethics and new AI tools and the direction the industry was taking. And there was a lot of uh, amped up uh, audience members who were very concerned about workforce initiatives and how, you know, everyday people can transition into tech relevant careers. And, uh, you know, there's reports always coming out, right? I think, uh, we also saw in April, Deloitte came out with their 2019 human capital uh, report. And that report basically said, we're moving to a future of super jobs. We're moving to a future of jobs that where one person replaces what two or three people used to do as a result of automation, code, click and drop. Um, what's your take on that? <laughs> so I think it's feasible. There's a guy running for president in the United States right now who just had an amazing podcast on 538. I'm using your podcast reference. Another, another guy's podcast, but Andrew Yang. Uh, he's a big proponent of universal uh, minimum income or universal basic income. And a big part of his argument for it is basically exactly along these lines of realistically, this is, the, and everybody likes to use the horse and buggy analogy. Oh, we're just going to find new jobs to replace these old jobs. But that's, maybe not realistic. And realistically this time, there is not going to be the same set of middle-class white collar jobs existing anymore uh, in 10 years, in 20 years. It's not just the bus drivers and the cab drivers and the, the people working at the front of the supermarket that are gonna be replaced or removed by AI. It's gonna be a huge part of the uh, management, the uh, you know work tracking, HR, data pipelines within companies, all of that is at real danger of just like the, the jobs making that slightly easier for everybody else are very, very easily uh, likely to be displaced. I was just talking, um, so I was talking to um, a friend of mine, she's in the film industry. And uh, part of what the film industry does is they take, everybody writes a script for a television show. That script gets sent to a set of lawyers uh, those lawyers manually look at every name in the script and then look that name up on Google to make sure that, you know, it's not someone's actual name who's going to sue them for using an intelligent script. This is like a super solved problem in NLP, right? Somebody, someday, somebody soon is going to do this and all those lawyer jobs are going to go away. Uh, that's true. Like throughout every single industry, there's examples of this. Uh, and I don't think we really have any idea of how disruptive this is really going to be. That was a silly little example, but it's everywhere. 
That's really around, I think, the automation pillar of how do you take a repetitive process and simplify that through a dashboard, simplify that through a report, or simplify that through an insight that um, can replace right uh, someone who was doing that manually and then create this super job that's augmented by the human. And so, you know, another... Um, example to to piggyback off that is, you know, Ginny, who's the CEO of IBM, was talking about that IBM's uh, created a very interesting uh, model recently uh, for HR. So I'll use the use case she brought up on work tracking. Uh, she said in April 2019 that now they're able to, with 95% accuracy, predict when you're going to quit your job. <laughs> I know, right? It, it was It's out in the news and everyone's like, well, that's interesting from an HR perspective. You know, you want to protect the company, serve the best interests, but how about from the employee's perspective? Yeah, and I think you 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 made an interesting statistical assumption there, um, which is ninety five percent of accuracy of when I'm going to quit my job. Uh, it's probably not that. It's probably if I have a thousand people, I can predict with 95% accuracy when the total batch of them will quit their job. For me, right, it's, it's much better for the employer, right, than it is for the employee. Um, I only quit my job maybe one or two times or three times in my life. Uh, them being wrong one in 20 times for one in 20 employees is very different. It's a very different experience for them than it is for me being the wrong one. And I think that really, it's a weird statistical point. I don't know if I'm making it perfectly well, but, uh, these type of, oh, 95% accuracy sounds really good. That's almost always better for the person who has the wide batch of people where they're just happy they got it right 19 out of 20 times than when you're that one person who was wrong or the wrong one that they picked. Um, not to say it's not a super interesting technology, but there is a, I think it, it, high accuracy things are that are still wrong every once in a while are always better for the people dealing with the batch than the person being the individual. Yeah, and I think uh, one of my colleagues as well uh, in the space, uh, Chris Butler, talks a lot about empathy mapping. He talks about these HR systems that have triggers and, you know, talking about, yes, 95 out of 100 times it's accurate or 19 out of 20 times it's accurate. But what about for that other person singled out where the mistake occurred? Is that a legal case waiting to happen? Is that... Um, or is that uh, an issue with the AI system? Right. And so, you know, what Chris talks about in empathy mapping, he says is how can we design AI systems to be diverse and to be inclusive and to be well-educated and trained uh, for multiple scenarios? And I think that's one of the big challenges um, uh, a lot of companies are starting to see uh, this year is yes, we could implement AI everywhere, right? AI for all, AI for every company, but how um, good is it really and how accurate is it? Yeah. I think uh, diversity on teams is huge. And I think explainability of models is huge. If I'm going to let somebody go before they quit, I better know exactly what feature set pushed them into the they're probably going to quit category. And I would want to know which of these input features, like, could I tweak one of these input features? Like, could I pay these guys three grand more to change this? Uh, so far, AI has been about prediction and not explanation of these predictions. 
And that works really well. Well, all you're trying to do is get the most, like most people to click through the ad or whatever. But now that AI is expanding into other industries, the explanation of why the choice was made is becoming more and more and more important. And most of the high class models, or most of the most predictive models are really bad at that. I think if people, and this is a huge thing that Data IQ is working on this year, uh, it's almost more, more important to stop making your models more accurate and start working on making them more explainable. That is like the key, I think, as we start rolling these things out across huge industries. And, you know, making it more explainable, uh, I know you and I ha had the opportunity to chat before the podcast about, you know, the Google Next uh, conference that you also checked out in April. And, you know, we know that Google's come out with their what if tool to also help with that explainability of models uh, and a lot of new products as well. And, um, you know, what were some things that you saw out of that um those demos and those new product lines that you think could be helpful for explainability uh, in AI? Yeah, I think there's, Google's doing some interesting stuff. They are very much, I don't know if it's a lot beyond a toy yet. I think they're working hard to make it more than that. Um, I think there's some interesting open source software that's already out there that really tries to start bridging, bridging this gap. The Lime uh, package, uh, is, is quite good. Started R, now it's available R on Python. Um, there's other packages out there that are working for this local explainability where, okay, I've chosen this person to be in this category. Locally, what mild changes in this person's input set uh, would move them into the other category? Uh, the Google What If allows you to basically slide along a single, slide a single feature while holding everything else equal uh, and see how that changes. Um, I was talking to somebody at Minitab uh, which is like an old statistical program. So I was talking to a statistician from Minitab, and one of the things they're working on is uh, actually trying to bring themselves you know, back into the forefront of this type of stuff by working extremely hard on uh, being able to combine different features into like a single what-if slider. So you have like, all right, these are your three most important features. As these adjust in your feature space, how does this thing change? Uh, so I, I think, um, yes, Google and Amazon are working on this really hard. But I think a lot of other people are. A lot of smaller players in the industry are also working on this. One thing I noticed um, with Amazon, um, they're trying to build endpoints that are just single. So you have a single prediction endpoint. So you have like, okay, this endpoint will just provide, um, you know, some NLP process. So this endpoint will provide. It will I recognize all the nouns in your, you know, block of text. So you send in any block of text, this thing spits back out the nouns. But that endpoint doesn't give you anything else. Like the endpoint gives you none of the what if, it gives none of the error bounds, nothing. It's just, you put it in, you trust Amazon, you get it out. I think that's a little bit scary. You know, it's scary of what if my emails were run in, right? And it says the email is sensitive or not sensitive. I mean, but that could be, good for a company, right? Protecting uh, information and trade secrets, but it, it still is very um, black box. And it's, it's how do you empower the users to then have decisions driven by AI? So if instead of HR being flagged, this email is sensitive, uh, we should look at this employee, we should look to terminate them. Let's use that other AI algorithm <laughs> to see if they're one of those one out of 19, uh, one, uh, five out of 100 that should be 
I've removed? Or how about instead empowering those employees to say, um, a pop-up appears in your email browser. Um, we think the email contents you're sharing are sensitive. Please be mindful. Are you sure you want to submit it? Right? Like, right so pushing the power back to the user immediately. I like that. Mm. I think it's interesting. And I think that's and not a lot of companies are doing that yet. And I think that is possible. And I think that's empowering, right? Human augmented intelligence. I think uh, when it comes to AI governance, um, thinking about ethical decision-making, thinking about um, regulations, uh, the humans should be at the forefront. And I don't think it's hard to do. Um, I think it's really what you were saying earlier, Jed, is how diverse is the audience who are building these systems? Yeah, I have an interesting uh, quick example about that. A couple of years ago, I was working um, for City of New York, building out a algorithm that looked at 311 calls, which is like Boring 911, basically like potholes, the kids below me are partying, that type of thing. Um, we built out this algorithm uh, based on, you know, the idea of the algorithm was which calls are worth following up on and which calls are basically like cranky people who will never be happy, right? So that way the New York City would know where to devote its resources. Uh, and we built out the algorithm and it was working super well, very high accuracy. Uh, but before we put it into production, of course, I mapped it. So like I basically knew where in the past 24 hours uh, I was getting realistic calls versus cranky calls because location shouldn't matter in this context, probably, uh, unless there's like a whole bunch of cranky people living in the same area, which then you maybe have a whole different issue. But of course, location mattered a ton. And I was only able to immediately recognize the location-based trends because I live here in New York and I know, oh, this neighborhood in Brooklyn or this neighborhood in the Bronx, like know the background the backgrounds of the peoples in those neighborhoods and it was basically just the model had just learned to be racist right like it because systematically historically in new york people from communities where there's higher percentages of people of color uh were more ignored by the city it just learned to ignore those people still and so of course we could not put this model in production but without some personal knowledge of the area we were putting this over or without, you know, adding in census data or something like that, where then we'd be able to see these red flags being raised, uh, I never would have picked that up on that. And we would have put that model into production and started ignoring people. Um, which is, you know, it's concerning. If you don't have people connected uh, to the things you're trying to predict, it's really easy to miss a trend, to assume that you have complete data when you absolutely do not. Uh, sorry. You know, uh, at the New York AI conference, I was in April also, I, I had the chance to be on a panel and I, I uh, sat down with Oliver Christie, who was featured in episode two of the Humane podcast. And uh, he painted a post-apocalyptical scenario, basically. He said, you know, for those of us uh, in the United States or Europe who are very familiar of privacy rights, uh, it's being explored, you know, data is very sensitive uh, and things cannot be used without your permission. But on the Eastern Asian countries, a lot of people know in China, there's this social credit monitoring system that's been implemented, which is very interesting to say the least. And what Oliver did is he said, let's think about the US. What if that system was put in place? What if your Facebook data, your um, uh, medical searches on WebMD, your um, 
uh, audio messages from your, you know, Facebook portal, Alexa uh, devices were used. If all this information was used to decide uh, whether you should be treated for a diagnosis, uh, whether um, you should get approved alone, uh, all your search habits, if it's all being accounted for, um, it's interesting because it creates a it creates a bigger snapshot of who you are as a person, but I think it just leads down that same rabbit hole of we're building racist AI systems and we're not building fair AI systems. And um, I think that's a huge concern. Yep. And as we start building more AI systems to decide, make decisions about humans and about how humans should be treated, uh, how we've been treated in the past becomes the input for these systems. AI systems still learn through supervised learning, which means a set of records that have been applied, a sub-label has been applied to these set of records. And if we're making decisions about humans, the only people who have been making these decisions about humans in the past are humans. So your labels are generated by humans, which means they have all the failures and foibles of our current society. Pushing those into a model make that makes that model exactly as good as our current society, <laughs> or worse, because you know it's a little it's missing some points, right? And clearly, our current society is one that has institutional racism built into it, and institutional sexism built into it. So. Yeah. You know, one extra scenario he shared was like, let's imagine a future where uh, autonomous vehicles are on the road and a scenario appears where the autonomous vehicle um, needs to uh, kill someone, yeah. right? Because it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's in that space where it's moving too fast. And at this point it's unavoidable. So if you're in the, the vehicle, right, it probably won't kill you. So it's going to target either the, the, another vehicle, or it's going to target the person on the road. And the insights came out said, well, if you're a shareholder of that autonomous vehicle company, probably won't hit you. Maybe that data will be already there that, oh, this person owns 10,000 shares. Let's make sure we don't kill them. Uh, and and so the, the almost comical outlook was saying, buy into these companies now and you'll be safe when the algorithms go wrong. <laughs> I like that angle. Yeah, you you'd originally think like it just chooses like the most utilitarian model, right? Like minimum death or something like that. Uh, but yeah, then of course you'd never buy a car that's going to kill you, and then start layering those different things on top. Of that. Like that, it gets all the way to shareholders. That's that's good. Uh, yeah, and it's it's so interesting because you know um, there was a big news that came out um, in April, which is still being unpacked. Of course, we know. Lyft IPO, uh, Uber is in the process of getting that set up as well. Um, but you know, Uber just came out saying, "Look, last year we made ten billion dollars, but we also lost three billion dollars." So that just uh, hit there in their S one, the the financial briefing to go public, um, and then. The, the icing on the cake, what I found so fascinating, is Ford. You know, Ford, uh, as a car company, came out saying, we overestimated um, the capabilities of autonomous driving, and we're downscaling our units and downscaling our investments. Uh, we do not think autonomous vehicles will be ready by 2025, as all the predictions were saying. So they, they just recently announced that and it's um i wonder what if what they really mean is we overestimated estimated human enthusiasm for autonomous driving 
Mm, was it the hype for the AI? Was it the hype for the humans? Was it hype for the systems? I just think maybe the North American car manufacturers and the world, Ford, everybody in general, um, thought that people would be more willing to give up their driving rights than maybe they actually are. And now we're seeing that human pushback. I do think the technology is absolutely would be ready by 2025. From a technological perspective, you'd have far fewer deaths on the road in 2025 if everybody switched over to autonomously driving vehicles. Yes, 100%. But do I think people will give that up? I don't know. I doubt it. I don't think it'll, I don't think it'd be an easy transition by any means. Right. And if you're in a city like both you and I are based out of New York City, so that's a lot easier to give up having a vehicle. Right. I haven't owned a car but, in 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, here it's easy. But then it, it, it does bring up the question of like a grid system. So, um, you know, there was also some major cyber attacks that occurred to the New York City um, uh, streetlight cameras and uh, the police cameras to look at license plates. Uh, that actually went down um, in April as well. And uh, it was down for over a week. And a lot of news outlets reported, you know, how did New York City respond to their facial recognition software being down? And was it an, a, and it happened in Albany too. So it happened in the state capital of New York as well. Um, the interesting thing is it crippled Albany's systems, right? Albany just like completely was been like offline. They're pulling out like dot matrix computers and, you know, we got to get back upline. But, but New York City being so centralized, um, already almost futuristic, if you will, right? Without parking, without cars, still, still happened, right? Life still went on. Um, I actually, I don't think you or I would have known about it if it wasn't so publicized. Yeah, I had no idea, but I was also out of town. So, uh, so what actually, what exactly went down? It was like the parking garages and the public, public stop or entry exit points like that. Or was it like centralized computing system? Uh, it's centralized computing. So cool. basically, uh, you know, all the police cars, right, are hooked up to the Wi-Fi networks yep. and they have the body cams and they have the cameras in the car and they can also use software to maybe detect if people are, you know, not where they should be or who these people are. So, th so the Wi-Fi network got hacked and um, there was a, a service request that took it down. And some people are saying, oh, no, it's uh, the system went down, but it was the Wi-Fi. The Wi-Fi yeah. was not secured and got <laughs> compromised. And this was not the Link NYC street Wi-Fi that everyone uses. But um, And then, of course, you know, blame goes around, right? Why did the system go down? Who took down the system? And I think it's, you know, less to isolate on this incident, but more to think about the future of Evil Corp, right? We think about Mr. Robot. We think about society where everything lives digitally. Um how much are these systems protecting us or protecting the bureaucracies that, oh my goodness. Yeah. I, I heard your sigh. Yeah, what, what, what's your take yeah, on yeah, it? Yeah, I think uh, the, it, it, almost, it almost, it's very associated also with what you were talking about with China earlier. They managed to centralize where all of their data is going, uh, which allows them to do this like global score, right? the same time it makes their system maybe weaker because if you knock out that central point then the whole thing falls to falls into garbage um whereas at least in the united states uh, amazon has 30 percent of your data facebook has 40 percent of your data google has 20 percent of your data whatever that may be however 
you split your shopping and emailing and social networking time, right? And, and thank God they're kind of separated, maybe. Uh, if they were all together, then somebody would have maybe this complete idea of your life and be able to predict every moment of it and say how much of a worthy individual you were uh, to society. Uh, I think it makes the ha- – having a distributed network, that's you know whole idea behind uh, the, coin, the coin revolution – uh, distributed networks are stronger than centralized networks from an attacker perspective. Uh, the more we rely on, say, a municipal centralized source of Wi-Fi as people are moving to, uh, the less or the more susceptible to a complete knockout attack you're going to you're going to be. Right? So centralization is weak. Period. Like the Death Star. Single proton torpedo you know, blows the whole thing up. And, uh, you cannot have a geeky episode without a Star Wars reference. So I think that is phenomenal. And, um, you know, since we just had that segue on Star Wars, just briefly, what is your take on, uh, well, you know, uh, Disney, right? So I know Disney's been doing a lot in New York. I don't think we've talked about it much on the podcast so far, but for those who don't know, Disney recently uh, completed their acquisition of Fox uh, and the Fox uh, 21st Century product suites, including movies and assets, and and now they own a majority stake in Hulu and ESPN and ABC and all these these organizations. And um, it was announced just a, a few months ago that Disney is building a 70-story skyscraper in Manhattan. Right, they're building a 70-story skyscraper. The Avengers Tower, Manhattan. right? Obviously, the Avengers Tower. You can go there, take pictures with all your favorite action figures, um, and you know, buy a Disney Park Pass. <laughs> but in addition to that, um, they've made a huge bet on New York and a huge bet on New York City. You know, we've we've seen companies who've also considered making that bet or not making that bet, and. And um, Disney's doing that. I know you mentioned um, your work also with the the New York government and, and these projects, like the 301 project. There was an, uh, the New York government also made a big bet the other day. They they rezoned some land in New York City that's been sitting empty as vacant lots, and said we're going to build a 30 story skyscraper for workforce initiatives. We're going to build this 30 uh, floor skyscraper just for training up the future workforce of America. And, you know, I, I wanted to take it back to this direction because, you know, I'm so passionate about education and, and I know you are as well about like democratizing access uh, for machine learning and AI, um, you know, but this is a question that always comes up, you know, at panels and everywhere, like how do we save America? How do we save the people? Um, you know, and, and I know you were talking about the case earlier, the, the truck drivers in middle America. Any hunches there? Well, I think there's – all right. So New York City is a place that is still maybe almost exclusively – exclusively inclusive is what I would say. Uh, New York City is still a place where people from all walks of life run into each other, touch each other, accidentally – have crazy random interactions on a daily basis. New York is still a place that is not isolated into a single industry or into a single group of people or into a single way people think. I think that's the biggest driver of why people keep coming here. I just spent a bunch of time in San Francisco and San Francisco has been just owned by tech. 
you can't go anywhere without talking to people who have already read all the same blog posts you have or had the same conversations you've had or have the same exact fears you have, uh, worries about the future of the world, whatever. It's frankly boring. Um, you know, you go to LA and everybody's just freaked out about the film industry. In Boston, everybody's worried about education. It's New York or uh, San Francisco, uh, like uh, Washington, D.C., everybody is, you know, politics, politics, politics. New York, nobody owns New York. And so when you come here, you meet different people from different walks of life with different fears, uh, different aspirations, different goals. I love that about here. I think that's why people are making bets about here. And I think that's why the center of machine learning really could be here because you have the people who are going to be affected by it. Uh, you have the people who know about all of these different worlds, have the business knowledge of all these different worlds, as well as you have this growing tech base uh, of folks who can actually implement this stuff. New York City is a great place for machine learning right now. I think it's a great place for machine learning. And it's just, well, it's a great place for jobs, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, ADP came out with their uh, payroll report that they come out with every month. And, and they said, we are now officially the lowest uh, in the United States, the lowest uh, job uh, unemployment in April 2019 since 1969. Wow. Since 1969. When did we land on the moon? When, when did this? July 20th, 1969. When did this happen, <laughs> right? And, and, and who failed to land on the moon in April 2019? Israel, right? Yeah. So that, that also recently happened. So it's, it's so interesting how we can go over – um, 50 years later in technology, uh, advancements and processing, and then crashes happen and, and bugs happen. And when we talked about New York City, right? So this bug I, I kept talking about wasn't really a bug. It was this hack, this crash, this DDoS, whatever we're going to call it. But um, New York's calling it the Y2K-like bug, right? Which is what brought their systems down and say, Y2K in 2019? Really? <laughs> Oh my gosh, we must be running on COBOL mainframe. Yeah. Well, I, you know what a lot of the banking sector is, so we have that. We have that going for us. Kids, if you want to get a job that will never go away, just learn COBOL uh, because banks will never turn themselves off and that's what they ended up writing themselves in. So, Yeah, it's such an interesting tangent. And for those on the episode, whether you are looking to get into tech or you're currently in tech, determining the next direction you're going, um, COBOL is, you know, one of those... <laughs> Don't learn, uh, that was a joke. <laughs> legacy languages that um, it's actually a very solid language, just been around a long time. And um, there's actually, um, there's literally consultants who travel the world and make like $250 an hour to keep COBOL systems online at banks, which is, is crazy. It's so in demand, but I, I think, um, you know, uh, COBOL is not what you should learn uh, unless you're right now 60 plus and that's that's what you know. Uh, I gave those same exact remarks on Data Science Live, uh, working on a, a, a episode between Monterey, Mexico and New York on, on those topics. But, you know, I think when I uh, talk with students who I'm educating uh, weekly and, and helping people get into this pathway, um, I, I always get the same question and, and it's tough to answer it. They say, okay, so should I learn code? If I'm going to learn code, it's going to be SQL. It's going to be Python. You know, with those two, I'll get a solid start. You play with the, play with the whole packages. I got it. Or should I just pick up Google Cloud or AWS or Azure or products like Data IQ and these other platforms and get certified and work with application interfaces, you know? I, I wanted to know your thoughts on that, Jed. Uh, definitely the former. I mean, you can pick that other stuff up as you work. Wherever you end up going, they'll have already chosen something, and you'll learn that on the job. Um, 
And I would say even before, the thing that's most useful day-to-day in my job is Linux command line. I mean, yes, I write Python, I write SQL, but I'm, I'm constantly jumping on different people's production servers. And when you're on somebody's production server, you need to be able to navigate around the Linux command line. And if I'm looking at a gigantic 20 gig CSV file and I need to be able to open this, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to need to know how to manipulate it using awk and set and things like that. Uh, these are old school tools, but Linux is running as 99% of the servers in the world right now, I think. It's not going away. Learn Linux command line. It's fun. It's easy. It's a incredibly powerful tool. That's my only addition to that. <laughs> so we'll rephrase this. We'll say... Don't learn COBOL, but do consider learning Linux command. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Learn learn Bash, for sure. And, and the great thing about Linux, you know, when you hear it, you know, if you're a non-techie uh, on the audience, you, you might say, oh, my gosh, what is Linux? Right, but you think of these honestly, big bearded guys running, like, Linux on their laptops. Like, oh, I have Ubuntu running on my laptop. No, I use a Mac laptop or I use a PC laptop. But every time I go onto a server anywhere, it's Linux. That's the background of every business in America. Right. And the truth is you could pick up the basics of Bash and Linux in, you know, four to six hours, yeah, right? Exactly. You could pick up a high level. Um, so I think that's the other thing important to know is we talk about workforce initiatives. Everyone fears, do I need to go and study four more years of knowledge to become tech relevant? I don't think that's true. I know a lot of the boot camps uh, went into the nine-month models and then the six-month models and now the three-month models. Uh, you know, timeline is always relevant based on goals and, and outcomes to be achieved. But, you know, I think the part that is still being determined is, you know, uh, how quickly those shifts are going to be seen across the entire economy. Uh, uh, with, with a quick train-up as opposed to four-year, eight-year degrees? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I know uh, I talked about super jobs, but it's also about super degrees. I mentioned that earlier in education that now because students don't know that direction, some students are going into double major, triple major, triple minor. You, yeah. know, to, you never know. Cover all the bases. Uh, yeah, I, I've hired folks out of boot camps and I've hired Ivy League PhDs and I've had boot camp people outclass the Ivy League PhDs 100%. Um, uh, it really, because this is such a new industry, that 10 years at school, you may have learned, you know, 5% of that might've been actually applicative or applicable to the job that you're working on right now in the industry. I think the, the boot camps have more flexibility. Um, however, just because you went to a boot camp, that doesn't make you any good, actually. Uh, there's no guarantee there from like a hiring perspective. That's why I see it. I'm not like, oh, this guy went to a boot camp. He's going to know what he's going to going to be doing. Or, you know, she went to she went to Harvard for her PhD. She she's going to know what she's doing. Like, it's it's hiring is really hard uh, in this profession right now. I think we haven't really figured out exactly how to do that. There's one billion blogs about that out there, but yeah. Right. Like it's an initial feature to say, oh, you went to a boot camp, so you might be quite competent. So I do want to interview mm -hmm. because I am curious to see your skills. Or you did go to an Ivy Tower. So, oh, I still want to interview you, but it'll get you in the door, right? It'll, yeah. it'll get you that phone screen or technical screen. And then you have to perform uh, for, you know, any of those citizen data scientists who are listening in here today or, or those students ready to get to the next level. Any tips for them? I, I know 
interviews have been talked about ad nauseum on the interwebs. But, you know, since you hire a lot and you interview a lot of candidates, you know, yeah. any... So we're hiring any, right now, by the way. Hi, everybody. Um, so I think what I... I don't, I don't want to say that I have gotcha questions in my interview, but I have a little bit of gotcha. Or I, have, I have some expected things during an interview. Um, some of those expected, what I expect, and this is a hard thing to train or it's a hard thing to teach, which is maybe why I really expect this because I want to get lucky with the people I'm hiring so that they have this, is a certain intuition about data. Uh, as part of our interview process, we give people a big, messy data set. And there's certain things that are that if somebody's played with data a lot before, they'll notice as suspicious or iffy about it. Maybe, and maybe without them being able to even put it into words, what's, oh, why is this strange? I want people to pick out these oddities and ask me about like, okay, why is this off in this? Instead of just, all right, I took a data set. I know exactly, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do. Turn all these variables into categorical variables, turn these into numerics, rescale them, throw them in a random forest, get an output and hand me that. I do not want that. Just because you know how to do that physical process, the fact that you didn't look at it, didn't think about it, you're disqualified. So that looking, that thinking, that intuition is really what I look for. Right. So getting the solution is great, yeah. but then what does getting the solution do? Perhaps it creates again, that black box issue of you got the solution, but could there have been issues with the data issues with the thought process that perhaps with a closer look could have been, you know, solved or could have been uh, remedied earlier. Right. right. With the advent of AutoML and uh, kind of the tools that we were talking about Amazon releasing earlier, I could throw this dirty data set into their API right now and get back the exact solution you gave me with your 60 lines of Python. So I need you to go a step further and think. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. And so I think one of the big takeaways on education is, yes, feel free to play with AutoML, feel free to play with SageMaker Neo, feel free to play with Data IQ products and get a sense of those automations. But you also want to know the behind the scenes. You also want to be able to uh, process what's going on because when you have to customize something, uh, knowing code, knowing Linux, understanding SQL and Python is going to take you to that next level. Yeah, it's almost... It What's interesting to me, and I'm partially biased uh, because I do have, I have a degree in political science, I'm almost more interested in somebody who can pass a technical test, but who has an undergraduate degree in sociology, in economics, in political science, in one of these soft science type things that it shows that you've thought about how to think about things from a theoretical perspective or from a human perspective. Uh, and yet you still have the tech schools. I really like that combination of skills. I think it's a very, very interesting one. You know, it's what makes us human. And we talk about that each and every day on Humane. Uh, if you're interested to hear more about the work uh, that, you know, Jed has shared with us today, you could check it out at Data IQ. You can check out Jed Dorty as well. And also go to the Humane Podcast website. That's H-U-M-A-I-N podcast.com. Thanks for being with us today, Jed, and look forward to talking with you soon. Thanks a lot. Bye. That's it for this episode of Humane. I'm David Jakobovich, and if you enjoyed the show, 
Don't forget to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you in the next one. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.